Good morning. I am excited to be here with you again this morning. Uh, we are continuing in our series of Old Testament character surveys, and I have to admit, I'm really enjoying this series. Uh, you know, so many times as, as uh, we spend our, our Sundays and our time together focused in on the writings and the teachings in the New Testament and, and the words that Christ directly spoke, uh, sometimes we do that at the expense of spending some time in the Old Testament. And as Trevor and Colin have talked about, uh, as, as New Testament uh, Gentile believers, most of us, most of us are not ethnic Jews, uh, we have been grafted into the family and the people of God. And so when we take a look back at our Old Testament ancestors, we're really looking at our own spiritual family history. So we're going to continue with that this morning, and we're going to dig into the life and example of King David. And, and I'm really excited to talk about King David, and I think primarily it's because I love epic stories. Uh, I love getting lost in the world of uh, movies and books of, of just epic stories. Uh, some of my favorite movies are, are the Lord of the Rings series and Star Wars and Gladiator and Troy, movies like this. But my all-time favorite epic has got to be Braveheart. When I was younger, in high school, um, we had a conversion van in our family. And this conversion van had a box TV and a VCR in it. And it beeped like a garbage truck when you put it in a reverse. Now, before you laugh, this was the mid-90s, so this setup was actually pretty sweet at the time. And so my mom would drive us to play soccer games, and we'd have a good distance to drive sometimes. And so it was always a fight between my friends on the team to find out who's going to ride with me in, in the van. And, and the primary reason is because on the way to every single soccer game, Braveheart got put in the VCR, and we would watch Braveheart to get us pumped up to play soccer. And we're typical high school guys, so we skip all the boring dialogue, go right to the battle scenes just to really get jazzed up. Uh, if, if they would have let me wear a kilt to go and play soccer at that point, I think I would have. So it's in this movie that one of the best lines I think has ever been written is, is displayed. So if you don't know Braveheart, it's been long enough. I don't feel bad spoiling it for you. But it's uh, Mel Gibson plays the character of William Wallace, a, a peasant Scotsman who leads a rebellion of his people against a tyrannical English government. And this is in the, in the 1300s. And so he leads this ragtag group of farmers, and they're fighting for their freedoms. And so we see battle after battle, and this unlikely group starts to gain momentum and victory. Until one point, William Wallace is betrayed by somebody who was supposed to be on his side, and he was delivered over to the king of England, and he was tortured and executed. And this movement that got so much steam seemed to be ground to a halt. So there's one final battle scene as we get to the end of the movie, and you've got the English lining up, expecting the Scots on the other side to clearly resign their cause, to, to accept the terms, and to go back home. But the one-time traitor, Robert the Bruce, turns around and gives a resounding speech to the Scots and says, you bled with William Wallace, now come bleed with me. And so as the screen kind of fades to black, you see these Scots who are still determined to win their freedom rushing at the English for a battle. And so the voice of Mel Gibson comes on to narrate this part, and he says here, in the year of our Lord, 1314, patriots of Scotland, starving and outnumbered, charged the fields at Bannockburn. They fought like warrior poets. They fought like Scotsmen and won their freedom. I still get chills when I hear that. <laughs> this morning, we're going to be looking at the life of the ultimate warrior poet. The life of King David has all the makings of a fantastic epic. If I could do the movie trailer voice, I'd do it right now. And it's coming this Sunday, the epic of all epics, the story of a man from humble beginnings, an underdog who rises through the kingdom to become king, 
a warrior poet who changed the course of a nation, a story full of battles, murder, betrayal, family drama, and ultimate victory. And King David's story has all of these things. David was the youngest son of his father, Jesse, a shepherd who goes on to be anointed and become the second king of Israel. David was a gifted musician, a gifted poet. Many of the most beautiful psalms were actually written by David himself. He was a skilled warrior, a wise general, and eventually the king of Israel. All the perfect ingredients for a great epic story. And so there's way too much material here for us to go into detail about everything that David did. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the theatrical cut this morning. And we're going to see what we can learn about David's example and what we can see about God through the story of David. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we just ask you this morning to open our hearts and our minds. Lord, as we look at the life and the example of somebody whom you declared was a man after your own heart. Father, I pray that you speak to each one of us now. Lord, bring our hearts and our minds to a place where we're so inclined to your word. So, Father, be with me as I speak. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So any of us that have ever been to a Sunday school have probably heard at least a few of the stories of David, the most popular obviously being the story of David and Goliath. And it's not just church people that know this story, right? The broader world uses the term David and Goliath to kind of illustrate usually the underdog going up against a giant and coming out victorious. And, and as Trevor did a good job of opening up the series with, uh, a lot of times we miss the point of that story. Even in the church, sometimes we, we can take the story of David and Goliath and kind of twist it in a way to deliver a message that the context of the story doesn't really support. So uh, before we get into that particular piece of the story, what I want to do is I want us to back up a little bit and kind of get uh, set the stage for the culture and the context that we're going to be in. So we've seen through our character studies, uh, we've been brought, uh, the Israelites have been brought out of Egypt into the promised land. So it's been about 400, 450 years since the Exodus, and the Israelites continue to exist as a nation. They continue to inhabit the promised land, but it's not an easy go. You know, they still are fighting battles. They're still being oppressed. They still have to go to war frequently. And so they don't have a king. And so in this place, in this vacuum, by design, God raises up uh, an office called the judge. And so these judges were, were people specifically raised up and appointed by God to lead the people during certain times. The judge was a very kind of an intimate relationship in terms of God directly appointing the judge and then relating to the people. So it was a very, very direct kind of control and what's called like a theocracy. So God was really ruling this nation through the judges at this time. So as we get later into the story, we get to Samuel, who is, is the prophet who appoints the first king. And Samuel is really the last good judge of Israel. Samuel has two sons. Everybody loves Samuel. He's done, a, he's done a great job in his role. But his two sons haven't quite walked in the same way that he's walked. They don't have the integrity that he has, and they've abused their office. So the people look around at the landscape, and they say, Samuel, you're old. You're, you're, you're on your way out. And your sons, who would typically take up this role, they're no good. And so we want you to appoint for us a king. We look at the other nations and we see a king. So we want you to appoint us a king. Samuel is, is talking to the Lord and in, in, in a frustrated way. And the Lord says, Samuel, listen, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So I will go ahead and appoint the people a king. But I want you to tell them this. And so he gives the people a very stark warning that's best kind of summed up with, hey, be careful what you wish for because you might just get it. So he delivers the warning to the people and the people say, yeah, we understand that. Fine. No problem. Still give us a king. So 
God leads Samuel to choose Saul as king. Now, if you were making this epic and you were the casting director and your job was to go out and find the first king of Israel, Saul would be the guy you would select. He was described as head and shoulders above the rest of his countrymen, handsome, strong, regal and royal in appearance. He fit the perfect look for the first king of Israel. But what we see as, as he is instituted as king, um, time and time again, he disobeys the Lord. He, he, he demonstrates that he doesn't have the internal character to lead Israel in the way that the Lord wants. So the Lord directs Samuel to somebody else, somebody whom he tells Samuel, I'm going to select a new king for myself, and this person is a man after my own heart. So he sends David over to Bethlehem. That'll be important future future generations. But he sends him to Bethlehem, to, to the house of Jesse. He says, among Jesse's sons, I have chosen a king for myself. So Samuel goes goes to Jesse and says, bring all your children before me. I want to look at each one. And so in the custom of the day, he would bring first his, his firstborn son before Samuel. Samuel looks at him and says, ah, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He looks like he would be the next king. But the Lord says, I have searched his heart and I've rejected him. For I don't look like a man does. Man looks on the outward appearance of people, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, Lord, so it's not him. The next son comes through. The Lord says, I've rejected him also. All the way down the line until all seven of, of Jesse's sons who are present, the Lord rejects. And so Samuel, I'm sure, a little bit confused at this point, says, is this all your sons? And Jesse says, well, there's, there's the shepherd boy. There's David, you know, but he's out in the field tending to the flocks. And so Samuel says, okay, we'll, we'll bring him in here. I need to see all your sons. The Bible describes David at this point when he walks in as, as youthful and ruddy in appearance with beautiful eyes. For some reason, his eyes were probably really good. That, that made it into the story. Beautiful eyes and handsome in appearance. And the Lord said, this is him. This is my anointed. Arise and anoint David. So Samuel obediently arises and anoints David as the future king of Israel. At that moment, the spirit of the Lord rushed on David and was with him from that day forth. Elsewhere in the kingdom, Saul, still struggling uh, to, to, to hold on to his kingdom, at that moment has the spirit of the Lord taken away from him. And the Lord gives Saul another spirit. An evil spirit from the Lord is the way it's described that would torment Saul. And so Saul would get afflicted by fits of torment by this evil spirit. And the only thing that would soothe the torment was music. And so Saul tells his court, I need a good musician. Bring me somebody that can play music. And one of the people in Saul's court says, you know, I've heard David, the son of Jesse in Bethlehem, he can play a mean liar. This is the guy you need. Bring him to me. So David comes into the service of Saul. He's, he's, been, he's been prophesied and appointed as king, but the appointment's not, not ready to take place yet. David's going to actually spend many years in the service of Saul. So he's in the court of Saul, and when these tormenting, this tormenting spirit would come on, David would break out his liar and Saul would have relief. And so he kept David in his service, and they grew very close together. But it wasn't a full-time job. So David would be in, in, in Saul's court sometimes, then he'd be going home back to his father's house to take care of the sheep. And so it's during this period where David's home taking care of the sheep for his father that Israel goes out to war against the Philistines. 
And, and so you've got this camp of Israel and this camp of the Philistines facing off against each other. And, and in ancient warfare, you would have a couple of different ways wars would, would play out. Sometimes you would have just mass battles. We've got plenty of accounts of that in Scripture and, and, and elsewhere. But every once in a while, sometimes the armies would do one-on-one singular combat to determine the outcome of a war. So you would have a champion come out and issue a challenge to the other side and it says, pick your best fighter, I will fight this fighter, and the winner of our battle will determine the winner of the war. So Goliath came out as the champion. Now, if you had to cast the part of the big, bad, scary champion, something like the rock on maybe even more steroids, I don't know, uh, you, you would come up with Goliath, uh, just a hulking person, just uh, he's described as a giant, but at the very least, several feet higher than anybody else. His, his weapons were described in terms of weight and girth. His, his spear was like the weaver's beam. I don't know how big a weaver's beam is, but you know, it's, I think it's probably pretty big. And, and so he was this brute that would come out, and he came out and issued the challenge to Israel. Bring me your best fighter, and if you beat me in combat, we will be your slaves. But if we beat you, you will be our slaves. Well, the only response coming from the Israelite camp was the crickets. Nobody was coming out to go and fight Goliath. So for 40 days and nights, Goliath in the morning and the evening would go out and taunt the Israelites. He would, he would jeer at them. He would curse them. He would curse their gods, yet nobody was going to step up and fight. So back in Bethlehem, we've got David in his father's field taking care of the sheep. And his father says to David, he says, you know, all of your older brothers, they're, they're, they're of fighting age. They're out at the war. I want to know how it's going. So here, take some gifts to them. Take some gifts to their commanders. Go down to the battle and just find out how it's going. Bring me back a report of what's going on. So David does. He walks down. He finds his brothers. He starts talking to them. And here it comes, time for, for one, of, one of Goliath's daily taunts. And he comes out and, just as he had done before, curses Israel, curses the gods of Israel, goes on this tirade, and David can't believe what he's hearing. And he turns around and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that is cursing the Lord? Why hasn't anybody gone out and stopped him? And I, I kind of empathize with his brothers at this point. You know, they're, they're, they're battle-hardened. you got your little brother coming up here, and they kind of just looked at him and said, Dude, shut up. Like, you, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a boy. You don't know what it's like to be at war. But other people overhear it, and they report to Saul and say, hey, look, somebody I think might be volunteering for the job. I don't know if they gave Saul his name, but when David approached Saul, he was probably still looking behind him. Who, who is it that's going to fight? But David comes to Saul and says, let me go. I will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul kind of looks at him and says, you are just a youth. And Goliath has been a man of war since his youth. You, you can't go out and fight him. And David's response to Saul was, listen, I'm a, I'm a shepherd in my father's flock, and I take care of the animals. And there's been occasions where a lion or a bear has come and taken one of the animals from the flock. And I have pursued the lion and the bear, struck them, and retrieved the animal back. And in the occasions where they turn and they attack me, I've grabbed them by the beard and killed them. The Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be no different. Saul likes the speech. He says, man, you got a lot of conviction. Go. But here, let's load you up first. So they put armor on him. They put him a suit of chain mail, really bulky armor, a helmet. They strap a big sword to his side. Like, all right, go. And, and David kind of, he, he can't move, right? He's, he's still a very youthful boy. And he says, look, I can't take this. I, I, I've not tested this armor. I don't know what it's going to do. I don't know how I'm going to move in it. So he pulls out a secret weapon, his slingshot. He goes over to the brook and, and takes out a couple of smooth stones, turns and faces Goliath with some rocks, a slingshot, and his faith in the Lord. So imagine now Goliath. He's been taunting the Israelites for 40 days, probably thinking, hey, maybe their strongest guy 
was a little too sick to come out to war. Maybe they're looking for a champion, or maybe they're back there drawing lots to see who has to come and face me. And here comes David walking up towards Goliath. And Goliath saw him and, and was offended. Is it my dog? You come out to, to fight me with a stick? Like, come over here, boy. I will feed your body to the animals of the field. And David looks at, at Goliath and says, you come at me with a spear and a sword and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the living God. And this day today, God is going to give you into my hands and I will kill you. And everybody in the camp of Israel and everybody in the Philistines will know that there is a God in Israel. And that was his statement. And when he stopped talking, he sprinted straight at Goliath. As he was running, he pulls a stone out of his pouch, puts it into a sling and flings it at Goliath. And the stone hits Goliath square in the forehead. Scripture says it sinks into his forehead and Goliath falls forward. David then goes over to, to Goliath and probably struggles to get this massive sword out of its sheath, but he lifts it up and uses Goliath's own sword to chop his head off. All of a sudden, the Israelites get very brave. There was a massive cheer on their side, and they start running after the Philistines. And on the other hand, the Philistines just saw their greatest champion killed by a little shepherd boy. And so they go into a mass panic, and the Lord delivers the Philistines into the hands of the Israelites. David is instantly famous. This is the closest thing we get to like a viral video in the Old Testament, right? His fame instantly spreads. And, and so his, his reputation goes forth. And Saul says to David, you're, you're full time in my service now. The, sh- the, sh- the shepherding is going to have to go to somebody else. And so they start walking back to Saul's house. And as they go, in the ancient world, what would typically happen when an army would return from battle, you would have the people that didn't go there to greet them, to sing, to cheer, especially in victory, to, to honor those that have come out. And so the, there's a, a, a song that breaks out as they walk by, and the women of the area start singing, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul's like, wait, what was that? Tens of thousands. They're giving him more honor and, and glory than they're giving me. And so he immediately saw his kingdom was in jeopardy. Even though he had known before the Lord had told him he was going to strip the kingdom, Saul went into protection mode. From that moment forward, he sought for the rest of his life to kill David. But he can't kill him right now. Saul is a very smart guy. and He's a hero. He just came back from this massive victory. The people all love him. I can't just go and kill him, have him executed. I'll let the Philistines do it for me. So he tells David, you've clearly got a gift in battle. I'm going to put you in charge of a cadre of men, and you're going to go out and fight my battles for me. So he sends David on some of the most dangerous missions he could think of. And time after time, battle after battle, David returns victorious. The Lord is clearly with him. Saul says, oh, that didn't work. So I'm going to have to think of something else. I know, I'm going to marry him to my daughter. She loves him. She'll be a distraction to him. Maybe she'll help aid in his downfall. David says, I, I can't be your son-in-law. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm, I'm lowly. I don't even have any money. Saul says, the only bride price I want is a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. David says, well, I don't have a lot of gold, but I can get you that. So he goes out and brings him 200 foreskins of Philistines. Marries David's daughter, marries Saul's daughter, uh, and, and she's in love with him. And, and, and the result that he was looking for, the distraction and the snare that she would lay for David didn't happen. So Saul finally gets to the point where he says, look, I'm sick of waiting. I'm just going to kill him. So he decides to start outright pursuing David, which then David has to flee. He takes a band of people, many of whom had fought in battles with him, others who were marginalized or disenfranchised with Saul and his leadership. And he led them through the wilderness into different towns and different places while Saul chased them. Several times Saul came and, and David had the opportunity to kill Saul. He was clearly given into David's hand, but David refrained. 
He would not lift his hand against the God's anointed. And he waited for the Lord to fulfill his purpose in his time. And, and fulfill it he did. So in, 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 in between David uh, being pursued by Saul, Saul's pursuing David. He's also fighting wars, right? The Philistines haven't gone away. And there was a battle where, where David and his, or Saul and his son were killed by the Philistines. And so a group of people based out of Judah immediately anointed David as king. Uh, the rest of Israel, there was a power vacuum. And so one of Saul's other children raised, raised up with a general to, to try and claim territory. In about seven years, there was, there was some internal strife until at the end of seven years, the whole country was united under the kingship of David. And God's promise to David had been fulfilled. It's at this point in the story where God reveals himself more clearly to David. He makes a covenant with David through the prophet Nathan. And he tells basically to David that everything that you've experienced in your life has been done by me. I have given you victory. I have given you protection against your enemies. I have established you on your throne in the same way that I promised to all those years ago. And here's my ongoing promise is that you will be on this throne forever. Somebody in your line will sit on the throne and from your line will come somebody who will create a kingdom that lasts eternally, prophesying about the coming Messiah. And David understood this and was overwhelmed. He said, who am I and who is my father's house, Lord, that you should do such an incredible thing to me? But thank you. Thank you for this. He was overwhelmed with gratitude. The story goes on in the next couple of years. We see victory after victory, continued success in the life of David. The military is strong. They continue to conquer their enemies. They continue to have success and prosperity in the land. It's as if everything is as it should be. But every good epic has a little bit of drama. And it's at this point in the story where we get to ours. So the way that war used to be waged in the ancient world is it was a, it was a warm weather sport. So, so armies would typically set off in the spring logistically uh, to keep an army fed and, and on point, clothed and, and, and supplied for these long military campaigns. You didn't want to do that in the winter. So they would go out in the spring, fight through the summer and fall, return for the winter. This particular year, David decided, I'm not going to go out. That's not an odd decision in and of itself. Kings didn't always go out with their armies, but he sent Joab out to fight his campaign this year and decided, you know, I'm going to stick here for a little bit. And so as he's walking on his rooftop and just observing the kingdom, he sees a woman bathing and he sees that she's very beautiful. And he says to somebody sitting next to me, he says, who, who is that woman? And they said, well, that's, that's Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah is a name we will know by now because he is one of what's called David's mighty men. So there's a, a handful, 30 to 40 people that, that wear this designation called a mighty man of David. And, and some of the deeds and the valor that they did were incredible. And some of the stories are, are told that they would single-handedly fight off several hundred people at a time and perform great feats on behalf of David. And Uriah was one of these men, one of these men that was so successful for David. David, knowing full well that Bathsheba is Uriah's wife, still summons her to his chambers and sleeps with her. A few weeks or months later, probably thinking that his sin was hidden and, and never would be brought up again, he gets a message from Bathsheba that says, I'm pregnant. So the sin that he thought was, was hidden, evidence of it started growing in her womb. So David says, okay, your eye has been gone since the spring. If he comes home to a baby, he's clearly going to think something's going on. So he says, I've got a plan. I'm going to summon Uriah back from the battle to give me a report. And when he's here, I'll have him stay a couple of days. And surely while he's home, he'll go and he'll lay with his wife. He'll sleep with her. And then when he comes back from battle and sees a baby there, he'll understand why. 
So he brings Uriah down and, and, and has dinner with him, and Uriah kind of gives him a report of the battle. And then David tells Uriah, okay, go ahead and take leave from me. Go ahead and spend some time with your wife before you head back to the battle. But Uriah is a man of, of incredible integrity. And he says to David, he says, my brothers are out in the battle, sleeping roughly in tents, bearing the heat of the day and the cold of the night. How could I go home to my bed and lay with my wife when my brothers aren't able to do that? I won't do this thing. I won't. David says, great. He's got integrity too. Okay. I got another plan. I'm going to bring him back the next night and then I'm going to get him drunk. And let's see if he refuses when he's drunk. He probably will go and and sleep with his wife. So he gets him there and gets Uriah very drunk. But Uriah still holds on to his integrity and won't go home. So David now comes up with another plan. He, He learned some craftiness from Saul. So he writes a letter to his general, Joab, and says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to place Uriah on the front line of the army. And when the battle is very intense, I want you to withdraw everybody except for Uriah back so that he's overwhelmed by the enemy and killed. He seals the letter and gives it to Uriah to deliver to Joab, effectively having Uriah deliver his own execution orders to his general. And Joab carries out the order. Uriah is killed in battle, and David's problem seems to be solved. So a short while later, Nathan the prophet, the one who had ushered in the covenant to David and relayed the covenant that God was making to David, comes to David and says, David, we've got a problem. You're the king. I need you to judge in this situation. There's two men. One man is very, very rich. He has many ox, many cows, many sheep. And the other man is very poor. And he just has one tiny little ewe lamb. And this ewe lamb he has loved since the time it was born. He feeds it with his own hands. It lives in his house with him. And he treats it like a member of his own family. And a foreigner came to visit the rich man. And the rich man thought to himself, why would I spend my wealth? Why would I take one of my animals, slaughter it to feed this visitor? Instead, I'll take his. I'll take his one lamb. David, upon hearing this, grew furious and said, Who is this man? He deserves to die. And surely whatever he stole, he will have to repay fourfold. And it's at that point where Nathan tells him, David, you are this man. You stole Bathsheba from Uriah and you had him murdered. This man is you. And David, confronted with his sin, fully maybe for the first time, breaks down and sobs, fully repents and admits his guilt before the Lord. This background prompts him to write Psalms 51. It's a a beautiful psalm of of just articulating a sinful heart and and repenting of sinful actions and pleading for the Lord's continued forgiveness and grace. I'll read just a piece of it here. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And God does forgive David. He tells him, look, I'm not going to take the kingdom away from you. I promised you I wouldn't, but there is consequences for this sin. And because you have done this thing, the sword will never leave your family. Your house will always be plagued with battles and wars. And at some point, somebody very close to you is going to do something similar to you. You took one man's wife in secret. He's going to take all of your wives and your concubines for all of the country to see and he will, he will displace you from your kingdom for a bit. So we fast forward a couple of years, and, and we see the next piece of the story pick up with David and his children. So David had many wives, many concubines, and many children with many of these wives and concubines. So we, we're going to look at 
this story is of, of Tamar, Amnon, and Absalom. So the two sons and one daughter of David. We start with Amnon, David's son, and he was in love with his half, most likely his half-sister Tamar. He pined after her day and night. He wrote emo poetry about her, I'm sure. He really just loved her, or quote-unquote loved her. And one of his advisors said, dude, what's your problem? You're always sad, you're always depressed, what's going on? He says, I love my half-sister, but I, I don't know how I can make that love come to fruition. And he says, I've got an idea for you. Why don't you pretend to be sick and ask your father, King David, and say, send my sister Tamar to me to help me, to cook for me, to feed me, and to nurse me back to health. The, the king will surely do that. Amnon says, that's a good idea, I'm going to do that. So he does that and summons Tamar to his house. When she gets there, he quickly grabs her and says, I'm in love with you. I'm not sick. Come, let's lay together. And Tamar protests. She says, no, we can't do that. This is not something that should be done. If you love me that bad, ask, ask King David for my hand in marriage, and surely he'll give me to you. But Amnon was not willing to wait, and he forced himself on Tamar and raped her. When the act was done, it says that he immediately hated Tamar and that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love he previously had loved her with. So he kicks her away, sends her out, a disgraced, violated person. Tamar runs to her brother Absalom and tells him everything that's happened, and Absalom says, come and live with me. Come and live with me and try not to think about that anymore. Don't say anything else about it. Scripture tells us that when David heard what happened between Amnon and Tamar, he was very angry. But that's the extent of the reaction we get out of David regarding the situation. We have no information on whether he, he intervened as their father. We have no information on whether he intervened as their king. It seems like justice was not served in this situation. So a seed of revenge started to grow in Absalom's heart. He made sure he let nobody know his displeasure with what happened between Amnon and Tamar. And over the course of two years, he orchestrated an event. He hosted a party for all of his siblings to come to. And he invites them all, and he tells his servants, when Amnon is drunk and I give you the signal, you are to pull out your swords and to slaughter him. And they do. Absalom murders his brother Amnon in retribution for what he had done to Tamar. Absalom now knows he's a wanted man, so he flees, immediately runs to another country in another kingdom and lives there for three years. And over the course of these three years, David is grieved by what happened to Amnon, but his grief starts to subside. And that grief is then kind of replaced with a longing to be reunited with his son Absalom. He longs after him. And so David's general goes and brings Absalom and says, come back to the kingdom. It'll be okay. The relationship can be restored. And so Absalom comes. But David present, prevents Absalom from seeing his face for two full years. He would not meet with him. He would not see him. He would not converse with him. Absalom at this point is getting angry. And, and insulted. Why did you call me back to be reunited if you're not even willing to see me? So he starts a bid for his own power. He starts to sow seeds of dissent within the nation, saying things like, King David doesn't care about you. If only there was a guy around that was capable of doing this. I don't know where you... Oh, well, me? Oh, well, maybe. He starts sowing this dissent. He starts going after the people's hearts, and he's successful. He gets enough followers to follow him that he makes a challenge for King David's throne. The challenge is, is semi-successful to the point where David has to flee his own, his own palace. Amnon come, or Absalom comes and takes David's wives and takes his concubines and has relations with them. They have a, an internal civil war. And eventually, as God promised, it would not be successful. David was restored to his throne when his son Absalom was killed in battle. 
but he comes back to his throne, two sons less. As David continues to rule throughout the rest of his reign, he, he grows into an old man, and the, the, the problem of succession comes up. He's got many children. Who's going to be the successor? David appoints Solomon as his successor. Solomon is the son of his now wife Bathsheba. After everything happened, him and Bathsheba were married. They produced a child named Solomon. Solomon would go on to be the next king of Israel. So David appoints Solomon as his heir, and then he dies. The epic of David is concluded. The story of the warrior poet who rises to rule a nation begins a dynasty that will last forever, ends. So what do we learn from this story? What, what, what things can we learn from David, and, and what things can we see about Christ in this story? Well, let's start off with some positives that David teaches us. First, David is a man of incredible faith. If you read the Psalms, if you read his story in detail, you will see time and time again that David's faith was rooted so firmly in the Lord. And listen to the way he approached Saul when he wanted to fight Goliath. He said, look, the Lord delivered me from the hand of the bear and the hand of the lion, and he will do the same thing with the hand of the Philistine. David wasn't confident in his own prowess in battle or his own strength, and he knew the only way he could take on a lion and survive is because the Lord had done it. He had faith that the Lord would do it. When he walked up to Goliath, the declaration he made was not, I'm mightier than you. It was, the victory belongs to the Lord. You come to me with weapons made by hand, but I come to you with the living God. He was so confident that the Lord would give him victory, and that confidence was well-placed. Second, we see that David has a tremendous respect for authority and a tremendous amount of patience. And this is really demonstrated well when Saul is pursuing David. So there's a period of time where, where Saul is going after David to try and kill him, and David's hiding. And there's been a couple of instances during these stories where David has the advantage. Uh, there, was a, there was an instance where they were hiding in a cave, and, and as Saul was pursuing, he said, oh, nature's calling, I need to use the bathroom. There's a great cave. So he walks into the cave to use the bathroom, and David and his group are hiding in the far back. And Saul takes off his outer robe and sets it down so it doesn't get messy. And as he's doing his business, David quietly sneaks up and slices a little piece off of that robe. And David, for his part, is immediately stricken with grief over this and says, how could I have even done that? And as Saul walks out, he calls after him, my Lord and my King. And Saul says, David, is that you, my son? And he says, yes. And look, the Lord delivered you into my hand today, and I could have killed you, but I didn't. And why do you pursue me? Why are you trying to kill me? And in this moment, Saul is overcome with grief, seemingly overcome with repentance, and he breaks down and says, I have sinned before the Lord. Come and be reconciled. And they are for a period of time. But Saul's murderous intent continues to return. But David showed a tremendous amount of respect, knowing that God had promised that he would be king. Being pursued unjustly, he's done nothing but serve Saul with integrity and victoriously, yet he's being persecuted. But instead of reaching out his own hand against Saul and trying to murder Saul or to take over possession in the way that he wants to, he trusts and waits on the Lord that if the Lord designed him to be king, the Lord would carry out his action against Saul himself. Now let's look at some of uh, an example of, of things that David tells us of what not to do. Primarily, we're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. Now the, the warning here is not simply just don't commit adultery and don't murder, although those are certainly lessons we learn from the story. But the way that this story starts is with a glance. David's on his rooftop. I don't think he was a peeping Tom at that point. I don't think he was intentionally trying to spy out people who were taking a bath. But he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath, 
And he has a choice in that moment. Do I repent of this? Do I take this thought captive? Do I give it to the Lord? Or do I allow it to fester and grow? Murder, adultery, all started with an unchecked glance. Look at what James tells us in James 1, 14 through 16. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So the warning for us is to not be deceived by sin. And don't be complacent with sin. That there's no such thing as minor sin. And there's no such thing as a sin that doesn't have consequences. All sin will seek to do is to enslave us, to bring us back into the yoke of despair and slavery that the Lord freed us from. Don't go back into that slavery. So, so that's what we learn, uh, uh, both good and bad from David. But what about the Lord? What do we see the Lord in this? How do we see him interacting? Well, we see him in so many different ways, but I think two primary characteristics of the Lord are really on prominent display in this story. The first one is that God is the definer of who we are. And we see this really well illustrated when he starts seeking out the man after his own heart. So he makes a proclamation to Samuel that says, I will, I will select for myself a king, a man after my own heart. Before David has even taken his first step towards the kingdom, God has declared him as having a heart after his own. And what do we know about God? We know that God is all-knowing. He's perfectly wise. He exists outside of time. He sees the future. God is never surprised. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And so knowing both the successes and the failures that David's going to walk through, he still says of David, this is a man after my own heart. How can God say that? I mean, sure, we see a lot of good examples from David, but there's certainly some examples that wouldn't lead me to believe that this is the heart of God. And I think the, the conclusion that we have to come to is that David's status was not rooted in his own actions, but it was rooted in who God declared him to be. God did not look at David and see a man with such internal character and self-worth that led him to call David a man after his own heart. He appointed David to be a man after his own heart. He filled and clothed David with his Holy Spirit. And he said, David, you are a man after my own heart. If you're a believer here this morning, you are called righteous by God in Christ. You are called a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. You are clothed in light. And that is not because of what you choose to do on a day-to-day basis. It's not because of your own self-worth, but it's because that's who God declares us to be in the power and sacrifice of Christ. David's actions were not strong enough to prove God wrong in his declaration of David being a man after his own heart. And neither is our sin strong enough to negate God's declaration that we are righteously his children in Christ Jesus. The second thing we see about God is God is redeemer. And this is really well shown in Solomon being chosen as the successor for David. So you've got this relationship that clearly starts off uh, mired in sin and eventually produces a child, Solomon. And as God has promised David, the kingdom to the Messiah is going gonna, is gonna to be traced through your lineage, your genealogy. And so Solomon is chosen. If you look at the lineage of Christ all the way back to Adam, you're going to see some very interesting people. God did not choose a self-righteous, ultra-holy, separate group of people to be born from because that people don't exist. They don't exist. But the line of Christ includes prostitutes, adulterers, 
murderers, sinners. All of these people desperately in need of the redemption that Christ was coming to bring. Christ came down to redeem David, and he came down to redeem us as well. He can take any circumstance in your life and redeem it for his own purposes. No sin that you have ever committed is too strong to overcome this redemption. So my encouragement for you, if you don't know Christ, is to cast your sins at the foot of the cross. Trust in the Savior. Know that he is stronger than your sin and he is calling you into an intimate relationship with him where you will be washed, it says, washed as white as snow. You will be declared righteous and you will be adopted into the very family of God as his son or his daughter. If you do know Christ, cast your sins at the foot of the cross and know that nothing that you do in life is strong enough to negate that redemption or to challenge the status of who you are. God tells us who we are and then he redeems us so that we are who he says we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the example that you give us in David. A man with so many good qualities but by no means a perfect man. And I'm, I'm just so thankful right now that Lord, his faults and failures as well as his successes were on display for us. That, Lord, we might be encouraged and challenged by the example he gives, both in his faithfulness and his repentance to sin. Father, I pray that every single person here is just brought into such a deep relationship with you that we're all encouraged to know how deeply you love us, that you would call us your children. Lord, overwhelm us with that fact this morning. Father, we just thank you for what you've done in our lives, that you've grafted us into such a beautiful family history and that you bring us in to an intimate relationship with you. Strengthen that relationship through your Holy Spirit. Draw us closer to you. Give us a heart after you like you did with David. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.